from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Dave Reepstein, and I'm a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm joining you here on SiriusXM Channel 132, which I do every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, and we are replayed throughout the week. It was an interesting week, and it is an interesting week. So since I was on the air last, we've had Halloween, and it was crazy cray. It was really, uh, really, really fun. My street just went nuts, just nuts. And uh, it, it was like I, I had over 300 trick-or-treaters until I turned the lights out. It was like crazy. We need traffic cops out there, but uh, lots and lots of fun uh, to be doing that. And, uh, and then this week is an interesting week because this is the midterm elections and we're setting the records in terms of uh, the number of voters. And so I'm on pins and needles about that. But we have a great guest that's joining us on today's show, and I'm very excited about our guest. So on, on the show is a woman that I met at a conference a couple months ago and was very impressed by. And that's Janine Ulrich, who happens to be the executive vice president of direct-to-consumer marketing at the Family Coppola. And we're going to have to figure out what that is, and you will be amazed by it. So we're going to have two different segments on the, on the program today, like we typically do. Uh, in, in the first half, what it is that we're going to do is uh, we'll be speaking with Janine and uh, taking any of your calls that you might have for Janine. I suspect all of my friends uh, who are winos, which is all of my friends, will be, uh, will be calling in with questions about this uh, because we're going to be talking some wine and some dine and, and uh, exploring what it is that the family Coppola actually does. And then in the second half of the program, uh, we're going to open up the lines for any questions you might have about marketing, marketing metrics, branding, um, anything that happens to be on your mind. So please do join us and give us a call. Uh, you, you can call us at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at biz, that's B-I-Z radio, uh, 132. But I want to take up no more time because I want to get to Janine. Janine, how you doing? I'm well, Dave. How are you doing? I'm uh, delighted to be talking to you again and, and really delighted to have you on the air. Yeah, thanks again for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure our, our uh, listeners are as well. Um, you know, I, I just mentioned you as, you know, and wine, but I want to explore what it is that the rest of the family Coppola does. But before I do that... Um, I think your background's interesting. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to uh, the family Coppola. Yeah, so um, I started working at a family-run small grocery store chain right out of high school. And uh, I was on the you know, front lines bagging groceries. I was a, a cashier. And uh, I had a friend <laughs> who started working at uh, Nebaum, what was then called Nebaum Coppola Estate Winery in Rutherford. And his role was overseeing the distribution center, which didn't involve wine at all. It was the non-wine merchandise that was sold through the, uh, through the winery tasting room and a couple of the restaurants. And he had an opening coming up, and he suggested I apply, and I did. Um, 
thinking, you know, it'd be a two-year stint while I finished my associate's degrees and went on to to get my bachelor's degree. And uh, here I am, 18 years later. Did, did, did I read somewhere that you were an art history major? I was. Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, I tried to put in my notice 16 years ago when I was getting ready to transfer to um, University of California, Berkeley, to study art history. And my supervisor at the time uh, she really encouraged me to see if there's a way we, they could keep me on because I, I said I won't be able to work full-time anymore. There's just no way. So we worked out a schedule and uh, crammed a lot of work and a lot of study into those two years. But, yes, I did I did graduate with that art history degree and then came back to work full-time. And then you went to work for a winery that has one of the most artful labels Absolutely. Uh, of any. Yeah. So I, I kept thinking there must have been some connection there, which I thought was really interesting. So, so let me ask you: When you started, um, did you did you you started with distribution? That then where'd you go from there? How'd that progress? Yeah, so I worked in the warehouse for about nine months, and the woman that ran the merchandising department. So these are the folks that were kind of going out and curating the merchandise that would be sold. She said she had an opening coming up, and so she encouraged me to apply on her team, and so I did that. And uh, I did merchandising, and I still have merchandising. Uh, that's the most consistent thing I've had in my role here. And eventually went on to oversee e-commerce and the distribution center. And then I had resorts for a period of time, and then they layered on restaurants. And uh, last year, uh, they put me uh, in charge of overseeing the direct-to-consumer parts of our, our businesses. So those people who are fortunate enough to know the Coppola wines would probably be a little bit surprised to find out what there's resorts, there's restaurants. Yeah. I find that absolutely you know, just fascinating. And it's got to be very, very different. So I want to explore that a little bit. But you started, and hopefully this doesn't embarrass you when I say you started, I think, in year 2000. Yes. And I'd be real curious how the business has evolved from year 2000 to where we are in 2018. Yeah, there's there's been quite a lot of changes. Um, I think that some of the biggest things aren't aren't too far off from what you're seeing in retail in general. And I'm sure your guests talk about this quite a bit as kind of the rise of omni-channel. You know, people have sure. different behaviors as they go shopping and and wine industry is no different. So. You know, for, for a lot of wineries, um, you know, wholesale, that's where the volume of your wine gets sold through that channel. And it's, it's great for moving volume. What's interesting about it is that, you know, you don't get quite as much, you know, insights directly on in your consumers, like who's actually drinking that bottle of wine or you know, gifting that bottle of wine to a friend. So I think there's been more attention spent on that direct-to-consumer aspect. Yes, it's not a huge volume, mover for wines, it's a great way just to connect with people and to really kind of grow that following of people dedicated to your wines. So uh, I'll tell you, and I hadn't mentioned this to you when I met you before, is that uh, a former student of mine was the one who started Total Wine, mm -hmm. who, who is the largest or one of the largest wine retailers in the world and, and probably one of your larger customers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but now what it is, as you're just saying, is more and more people are buying directly. I, I, I'm curious, 
that's got to be so difficult to try and manage given the different state regulations and every state's got a different regulation and and so how do you how do you even begin to manage that yeah that's really difficult because it it's fluid it changes it changes quite a bit <laughs> um fluid. you know and and even even states that open up for shipping they might have some strange restrictions around that so for instance uh, i have in-laws in minnesota and my mother-in-law is a fan of wine and you know we'd ship her wine and then i get an alert saying oh i can't ship to her anymore because i don't know if that's still the case but at one point you could only ship two cases of wine per person at a household so then it has to remember okay next time i got to ship it to my father-in-law's name at that address you know so wait 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 Are, you can only ship two cases at a time or over a year or... over a year so what would happen was i wouldn't know I would assume that she placed all of her orders through me, but sometimes she would see a deal for penny shipping and she'd go ahead and place an order unbeknownst to me. So I'd hit a, I'd hit a limit. Our warehouse would give me a heads up. Oh, we can't ship to, to this name at this address because this name's already received so many, so many cases. So who's, who's tracking that? That sounds that sounds way too weird. It it, it yeah, it's very complicated. Um, a lot of folks in the industry they use a ship compliant as we do. So that's a way for us to funnel all of our shipping orders to help us make sure that we're on top of compliance. You know, are we hitting some some weird limits with somebody who's in a particular state, um, or is there a um, you know an issue with the birth date or something that might come up? So that's something that we rely heavily on. Wow. So so you know, there's all these regulations. One of them that gets in my way, by the way, is that. Uh, if you have wine shipped, you have to be there to sign for it. That's true wherever you are. And, and yes. so, you know, I can't have it shipped to my home, which means I have to have it shipped to my office, which means it's got to get past all my colleagues here in the office. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're all winos and, and ready to jump on it as well. And, um, and, and then, you know, I've got to lug it down to my car. And so, you know, it's not the easiest thing to try and do. Uh, if if you're buying it by the case, and and so it, it, it's it's a real dilemma, and I assume that stands in the way a little bit. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, that's that's definitely an inconvenience for people. You know, constantly having to keep that in mind that somebody has to be there to sign for delivery. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest hurdles that we deal with in direct to consumer shipping. Once you get past the you know the state state laws and making sure you're compliant with that. It's not convenient to the customer or or to us. No, it re- it really yeah. is not convenient for sure, and and it's got to be a barrier for you and and stands in the way for some of your customers. Yeah, yeah, it does. So let me remind our audience: you're listening to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty Two, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are currently speaking with Janine Ulrich, who is the Executive Vice President of direct-to-consumer marketing at the family Coppola. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So you do direct-to-consumer to, uh, to marketing. What's that really mean, and, and how, do you, how do you do that? Well, 
Yeah, that's part of it. I oversee the, the operations of that. We do have, I, I want to mention, we have an executive vice president of marketing for the overall company, Jennifer Lightman. She's been with us about two years, and she's actually the person who recommended the conference to me. So I wouldn't have met you had it not been for her. Well, good for her. Thank her. Yeah, yeah. So so we, we tag team a lot. You know, she she spends a lot of time on the, on the wholesale business, but what I really loved was refreshing about her was she came in thinking about, and you brought this up as you introduced me, there's all these different interesting touch points within our c- company. How do we tie those together to get a better understanding of the, the family Coppola fan or consumer, if you will? And when you say different touch points, you're talking about, well, there's the restaurant, there's the mm-hmm. resort. So there, what other touch points are you referring to? We have a quarterly literary magazine called Zochope All Story, which is really impressive if you haven't seen it. It's beautifully done. We have different guest designers every quarter. Um, earlier this year, we had Nicholas, uh, Nick Cave, for instance. That's so great. that's a touch point. We have our restaurants, but we also have a line of pasta sauces and pastas and hot sauce. So I would find those in the grocery store? Hopefully, yes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> or, or online through us. So when you do your direct-to-consumer uh, marketing, are you sending emails? Are you online? Um, how, how is it you're doing that? Yeah, all of the above. So definitely emails. Um, a big important chunk of our business is our, our wine family, which is our, our wine club model. Right. So we do a lot of cases through them. We do a little bit of direct mail, um, but a lot of it is primarily online. And um, we worked with um, tag team with Jennifer. You know, they did kind of larger online campaigns for the whole company, and then they would run some tests to point people directly to our website as well. And people that are buying online are they buying uh, at Coppola.com or are they um, are they buying at Wine.com or some other um, some other distributor that you're selling through? So we, we have our own online store at the Family Coppola website, and that's where you can buy everything from Diamond Collection, which we're most known for, um, to some of those more exclusive bottles like Eleanor, which I think I raved to you about yes. when we met. Um, but then, yes, people can also buy our wines through other channels like wine.com. And uh, and is that part of your responsibility, or are you just uh, on those that are directly buying online? Just the, the direct purchases, correct. Okay. And by the way, my compliments to the Eleanor. I, I am, am now a fan, so that's, yes. that's a great wine. So That's my favorite. Yeah. No, it's it's good. So um, I'm curious. You, you go directly to consumers, so you have their names once they've ordered. And you can go back and try and get them to reorder and remind them and, and, and stay in touch with them. Um, how do you reach out and how do you identify those that haven't bought that are likely customers? Yeah, it's, it's a delicate dance because we don't want to hit people over the head with too many messages at once. But if you're a member, you might be getting specific messages about an upcoming shipment that you have or an upcoming event or... The big one for us is when we open up reservations for our pool at Francis Ford Coppola Winery. Uh, that's when we see a lot of traffic, people trying to, to book the reservations for the cabines at the pool. So uh, Pool, pool, pool. What, what, you know, a wine pool? <laughs> a swimming what, what, pool, a uh, swimming pool, yeah. What, you have a swimming pool at we, the winery? 
Yes, we have a swimming pool at the Francis Ford Coppola Winery in Geyserville. So uh, do you have a whole bunch of lifeguards, I'm hoping? Yes. <laughs> My, our CEO likes to joke that we have more lifeguards than winemakers in the company. That's, that's really funny. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so you get people that come to the winery, and that's, you get their name that way. You get their name through the wine club. Uh, you get their name once they've purchased. But how do you how do you identify other prospective customers? Because I've got to believe there's a whole set of people that would love your wines that need to be connected to you. Yeah, you know, and that's and that's a delicate dance too because we don't want to be obtrusive or invasive. We do not buy email lists from other companies. You know, we've been approached by people saying, "Oh, we have this list of people that are interested in." And travel and wine, I mean, we, we don't buy those lists. Uh, one thing we're looking at more closely is, is doing, doing partnerships with other brands or, or other companies. Um, oh, and then I'd be remiss not to mention that we also just opened up a Coppola Rewards program. So that's a loyalty program where people can upload images of their receipts regardless of where they purchased our wine, and they can earn points that way. So that's a, that's a way to get information from people that maybe haven't come on property or signed up to be on our email list directly. Um, they're coming through that way as well, and then we can start messaging them directly too. So I can totally embarrass myself by showing how much of your wine I'm drinking? And I would be impressed. You, you wouldn't would have be to be impressed. embarrassed with me. <laughs> well, it sort of is interesting. I want to get my rewards for the amount of wine that I'm drinking, but I, I get that. Mm-hmm. And so once you get their names... Um, how do you reach out and how do you know? I want to know how you know whether or not that marketing is effective. Yeah, I mean, we look a lot, as, as most people do, at things like open rates, conversion rates. You know, once we see people are, are kind of maybe just not opening a consecutive amount of emails, we may decide, okay, we'll, we'll put this group on hold and we'll wait to reach out until maybe we're running a sale on wine that we know that they've purchased in the past or like wine that they've purchased in the past. Or maybe we're getting ready to unveil a new wine that this group of people hasn't tried, but some of the characteristics are similar to things that they really love. So that's something that we, we look at. Okay. And uh, I've got to ask this question. And how much of the marketing is of the wine itself, the product itself, versus just the image that's created? Well, for direct-to-consumer, a lot of it is centered around the destination, the winery. Um, that kind of helps amp up our storytelling a little bit. Um, so we do always like to make sure members know what's going on at the site. But not everybody can make it up to Geyserville that often. So we are pretty careful about making sure that everyone's up to date on our new releases. But, is, you know, I know, for example, if we talk about vodka, that mm-hmm. there's not much of a change uh, or... Uh, there's not much differentiation from one vodka to the le- uh, to the other beyond what's on the label and how it's positioned in the marketplace. So I'm curious how much that plays a role. As far as the specific wine? In, in terms of sort of, you know, generating volume and sales. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have quite a bit of skews uh, at the winery, Um so there's a lot of different ways that we can we can market to people based on kind of the profile, if you will, that they're interested in. I think that's what the funnest part about wine is that there's so many things to discover. And I, I do think one thing that the industry at the whole needs to look at, too, is to maybe make wine more approachable to people. 
you know, one thing that I feel bad if, if somebody finds out I work at a winery and then I start to ask them questions. Oh, tell me about, you know, the wine that you drink. What do you like? And sometimes people are embarrassed to answer. And that breaks my heart a little bit because I think it should be fun, a fun discovery. And so we try to work that in. Well, when it's, when it's a $2 bottle of wine, there's a little bit of embarrassment. Uh, we, we've, uh, let me turn to one of our callers that we have online and, uh, and, and see what uh, she has to say. So, uh, Sally, welcome to the show. Uh, how can we help you? Hi, Dave. I love your show. Um, I had a question, actually, because my boyfriend and I were out in California a few years ago. We went on a wine tour and really enjoyed going to the different wineries and to the wine tasting rooms. And I was interested in knowing from your guest, um, do you do any statistics on what's the turnaround? I mean, how many bottles or cases are purchased based on people coming in and doing the wine tasting at your winery? Great question. So, Janine, what's your answer on that? Yeah, we definitely look at, at the traffic count and, you know, how much we're able to convert. You know, there's some things that we keep in mind. So, usually people are coming in pairs. So, you know, we we look at, we try to look at how much wine is sold per couple. Um, and then we always look at average sale. So, how much are people spending, not just on wine, but the tasting experience itself. We've added some different tasting experiences because we recognize that some people just want to come because they're curious. Maybe they don't know much about our wine, or maybe they came because they wanted to look at the Godfather desk or come to the pool. So we have an experience um, for a lot of those folks. But then if we can tell that somebody might be interested in something a little bit more elevated, then we'll upsell them to a, a kind of a more intimate tasting experience. So that's been a focus that we've spent a lot of time on this past year is trying to upsell upsell those higher-end tasting experiences, and we have seen that people buy more wine on during those experiences. So you make money on the, on the uh, wine tour itself? Is yes. That, yeah? Uh, okay. And, and, pay for the lifeguards. Uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> Got to pay for those lifeguards. So, Sally, stay with us just a second. I want to uh, follow up with Janine on this, which is I'm, I'm trying to figure out, do you follow up with people to find out Oh, now that they've tasted this wine at, at the wine tasting, um, do they continue to buy and count that as part of the of the value of those wine tastings? Yeah. So, as I mentioned before, you know, one of the key pieces of our direct to consumer business is is that wine family membership. So that's a, a very important thing that we look at. Is you know, is this person a prospect to join that reoccurring kind of subscription model? So that's when that happens, then yes, we can definitely easily follow up with people and see, you know, how long are they staying in the club? Are they making additional purchases outside of their shipment? Are they spending Are they spending money through other places like our restaurants or our resorts? So we look at, at that too. Okay, and and Sally, I'm curious. Um, since you mentioned that you and your boyfriend went tasting, were you able to remember what wine it was after you'd gone to the second or third winery? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember we had a good time, all right. but that's all I can remember. Well, that sounds great. Thank you very much for calling in. Appreciate the call. Um, so it, it is, I've got to believe those those uh, tasting rooms are really pretty elaborate, and, and it, it's quite expensive, I would think, to run those. And so they've got to just pay for themselves, but also to help promote the rest of uh uh you know the longer-term uh, sale. So I would, I've got to believe that's an important part of it. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, when we, you know, we have all these different components like the pool and the restaurants, uh, the events that we run, and we also sell private events at, at our properties too. So a lot of times I always try to look at it holistically. So instead of just looking specifically at the restaurant because, you know, restaurants are expensive to run. <laughs> They're, right. you know, the labor is pretty high. Um, but we kind of look at it as part of the, the benefit of being a member because they do enjoy discounts at the restaurants too. So, so I look at the big picture and see, okay, as a whole, are we achieving the goal of what we want to do as far as the overall sales, of course, but then also just building that, that membership loyalty and retention. Uh, so that makes sense to be able to look at that. Uh, no question about it. Uh, again, let me remind our audience that you're listening to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're currently speaking with Janine Ulrich, who is the Executive Vice President of Direct-to-Consumer at the Family Coppola. You know, one of the things that uh, we talked about, Janine, is uh, you've got these restaurants that are part of the Family Coppola, and you've got these hideaways. And uh, I will tell you, by the way, that uh, my girlfriend and I are going to head off to Italy this summer, and I started looking at the um, the hideaway in Italy. It looks incredible. Palazzo Margherita? Uh, it's, yes. It's a gem. It's oh, gorgeous. Have you been to all of them? I've been to all except Hardin Escondido in Argentina. Well, you got to go there, I assume. But the one the one in Italy looks priceless. It, it really does. I'm, I'm curious about sort of, you know, wine and 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 resorts. That's a those are different businesses. How do, how is that managed, and how do you try and, and coordinate those? Well, you, you could yeah, you could say it's a different business, but it's it's part of a a similar lifestyle, right? And a, a lot of the things that Francis sets out to do is based on his personal experience and things that he he enjoys. So um, he jokes that he got into the resort business by accident. I believe he was looking at potential properties uh, to purchase while he was filming Apocalypse Now in Vietnam. And Eleanor had smartly told him, we should probably find something closer to home. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> he ended up looking in, in Belize in Central America, and, and uh, that's when he, he purchased the property at Blancano, which was the first resort. It didn't start out as a resort. It started out as a as a family hideaway, but in order to maintain it, you have to then start, you have to hire a caretaker to take care of the home, and then you bring in some cooks when the family's in the visit, and then that's when you decide, okay, well, maybe I need to open this up so I can pay for my vacation home, basically, and that's how it started. And so does the family end up going to each of these hideaways? They do, uh, yeah. And so we might run into them if we're there. Who knows? Well, okay. And so, you know, so much of the of who you are is tied up in the Coppola name. And I'm real curious about, first of all, how well that name plays internationally, since we were just talking about the Coppola uh, hideaways in various parts of the world. I, I, am I correct in assuming that uh, it, it is a world-renowned name? Yeah, I mean, I... People come and visit us from all over, and they they come knowing about Francis Coppola, the movie maker, but then also also the the winery. So we noticed that you know at the winery at Cafe Zotrope in San Francisco, people are coming because they already know know about the person and and the wine. And how do, how does the wine itself capture the person? Is there is there any real connection that we could sort of get a sense of? Uh, 
Apocalypse Now and the wine. Or actually, it's it's a little bit interesting that the wines aren't named after some of the movies. Well, it's it's funny that you say that because we did just release an Apocalypse Now wine label. <laughs> I love it because the 40th anniversary is is coming up next year. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to the type of wines that Francis enjoys, and the big thing is paying respect to to the land and what we have. And so, um, you know, he works very closely with the winemaking team, and you know, he's looking at different things. Eleanor was obviously very involved with that that label that has her name on it. So. So yeah, we we he didn't start off really wanting to play into the movie pieces too much. I think he was kind of sensitive as to you know how it might be perceived if people are looking at the wine first as something made by a director versus something that truly comes from a beautiful piece of land that has some great flavors and expressions in it that can be enjoyed by by your loved ones. So that's always something I think that was in his mind. And I thought that was pretty clever that he he did that. Yeah, and uh, there's there's no question about that. Keeping those separate, but then also connected in some ways, and and so intriguing to do that balance. And the restaurant aspect that you've got. Um, how many restaurants do you guys own? We have three. So one in San Francisco, Cafe Zotrope. That's not attached to a winery. And then we have Rustic here at Francis Procopola Winery. And we have Wero, which is at Virginia Dare Winery. And then there are restaurants at the resorts as well. Okay. And is, is, is the marketing of the restaurants, do you go to the same set of customers to do some of that marketing? And, and if I'm a member, do I get some benefits there? Yeah, members get benefits at, at not just the wineries, but the restaurants as well, as well as some of the, some of the resorts, not all of them. Um, so we... We market to them, especially the local members that we know will come back, and we let them know what's happening. You know, maybe there's a new special that we're unveiling at the restaurant or a, a kind of a chef's menu that we're going to unveil. The cafe puts on really intimate um, experiences. They just had a fun harvest dinner a couple of weeks ago, and and it was a busy packed night, and people were trying to come in from the outside, but everything was booked. So they're always looking for for ways to keep people, to bring them back and to feel like they're part of the family. Uh, And and so keep it pretty well connected in in many ways is what it is I'm hearing, which is great. Uh, You know, one of the things that you've talked about uh, just a a bit ago was the number of SKUs that you've got, stock keeping units. Um, Can you get too diverse and too many different SKUs? And and then how do you get uh, basically distribution of all those since you started in distribution? Yeah, so, um, yeah, if you have way too many, too many, not just SKUs, but brands, that would definitely be a heavy lift for, for any team. Right. Um, so a lot of it is also about, you know, how much are you really pushing a certain brand, you know, in a certain channel? So, you know, direct-to-consumer, one of the things we always love to ask for are some more exclusive wines that we can offer our members. So last year, for instance, we did an H party wine that was exclusive to members. It was named after an annual event that we have every year. So we try to be careful. You know, there's that balance. You know, we, we want to bring in exclusive wines for our members, but we also know that we have a very busy winemaking team, and we want to be sensitive to that and everything that they have going on. Um, 
but and you know not all of the the skews make it sometimes you you make something after a couple of inches and say okay we're gonna put that aside and and focus on something else right it just adds complexity to the whole management of it so i i hear that very clearly an overall question that I've got for you is one that is, do you have any advice for uh, for someone who is trying to, that's smaller and trying to do an omni-channel business and any general advice that you might have for them? I think the, the big thing for anybody, regardless of the size, is to, to try to figure out how to make that buying process more convenient. So, you know, there's certain things that we won't be able to solve ourselves, like somebody needing a sign for for a shipment of wine, for instance, but, you know, how how easy are you making it for your customers? If they're in your club, for example, to maybe customize their shipment somehow or easily put a shipment on hold, um, what partners can you work with to kind of cross-market to different people? Sure. I think that's, that's a, a big wave that's coming. It's just, you know, especially if, if you have a destination winery like ours and maybe somebody comes out once a year. So for that customer, you know, why would they want to join my club if they aren't going to come back anytime soon to the restaurant or they're not going to make it out to the pool next summer? You know, what's what's the convenience factor or the value factor for them? Yeah. And some yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. Uh actually my last question for you, which is what's your favorite Coppola movie? Favorite Coppola movie? That's a good question. Well, the funny, so the first movie I saw, um, I was in high school, and our teacher showed us Tucker. Oh, I like that movie a lot. Yeah, yeah. That was a really interesting movie, and, you know, a lot of it was about the, you know, the premise of what happens when the small, you know, underdog business tries to make it, you know, in in a world with these kind of, you know, big companies that can kind of crush you at any moment. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and you know, part of me always roots for the underdog. Well, I, I, I'd like to tell you, I was in grade school when I saw that, but uh, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I won't tell you that. that. Anyhow, uh, and the best wine that goes with Tucker? Oh, best wine that goes with Tucker? I would say a Claret. There you go. You can't go wrong with that. I was in the store yesterday and saw someone pick a bottle of it up, and it was fun seeing that happen out in the wild. It was great. Well, that's great. I will tell you, I have now tasted a number of Coppola wines, and I haven't found one I didn't love. So keep keep up the good uh, work, and great to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining. Lots of fun. Thank so you. appreciate it. So uh, we're going to need to take a a break, but uh, please do stay with us. When we get back, I'm going to take your calls on anything related to marketing, branding, and metrics, or any of your thoughts that you might have about the interview we just had with Janine Ulrich uh, of the the family Coppola. If you want to join the conversation when we return, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132.